1952. You're in the third grade at PS 18 in Williamsburg, Brooklyn, squirming in your seat with the other kids in your neighborhood while you try to get the hang of the new division problems your teacher put on the board. But then she wheels a movie projector into the room, tells you that what you're about to watch is very important. The lights are turned off, the movie starts, and now you're seeing a cartoon turtle demonstrate how to survive a blast from a nuclear bomb. A blast from a nuclear bomb? You'd heard about them when your parents talked about the news and someone called commies. But is it possible that it could happen right here? Suddenly, playing with your friends isn't your biggest concern. This is Fallen Walls, Open Curtains. The scenario I described is actually pretty mundane, and if you're of my generation, you probably also sat through a number of educational films or film strips in elementary school. And even though I am sure that in the 80s I watched movies in class that were produced a couple of decades earlier, I'm very certain that I did not have the pleasure of seeing Bert the Turtle tell me how to duck and cover. But in creating the introduction to this episode, I was wondering if this is what it was like for my father growing up in Brooklyn in the early 1950s. I'm honestly not sure what year my grandparents moved from Williamsburg to New Hyde Park, but I do know that after my grandfather returned from World War II, his then small family returned to Williamsburg and ran a grocery store for a number of years before finally moving to the suburbs. And I can picture my dad sitting in a classroom in Brooklyn or New Hyde Park being shown this film, which I will look at in detail later in this episode, as well as talk about its enduring legacy, which did include my own experience in elementary school about 30 years after his. I, by the way, am Tom Panneries, and this is episode 3 of Fallen Walls, Open Curtains, a pop culture affidavit miniseries that is brought to you by the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network. The purpose of this series is to take a look at the end of the Cold War as it happened 30 years ago, and also look at pieces of popular culture from throughout the history of the Cold War. That latter segment this time will focus on the educational films and propaganda of the Office of Civil Defense that were produced in the 1950s, specifically that children's educational film Duck and Cover, and the propaganda short The Red Nightmare. And in case you are wondering what the song you just heard was, it's called The Great Atomic Power by the 1950s country duo The Leuven Brothers. This duo wrote and recorded a number of albums through the 1950s and 1960s, and while they did write songs that touched upon secular subjects, they were most famous for writing songs that were deeply rooted in their Baptist faith, and are considered the 
fire and brimstone type of songwriters. Their most famous album is 1958's Satan is Real, which has an infamous cover of the two of them standing in a flaming rock quarry with an image of Satan behind them. That particular album features songs such as Satan is Real, Are You Afraid to Die, and Satan's Jeweled Crown. The Great Atomic Power was released in 1962 on their album The Weapon of Prayer, which also features a number of war and military themed songs, including Soldier's Last Letter, From Mother's Arms to Korea, There's a Grave in the Wave of the Ocean, There's a Star Spangled Banner Waving Somewhere, and I Died for the Red, White, and Blue. In 2009, the AV Club's Nathan Rabin spent some time with the Leuven Brothers music, and he has this to say about the great atomic power. In four potent words, Charlie and Ira Leuven created musical shock and awe. With long, lean limbs and skin stretched taut over bony features, the Leuvens looked like scarecrows, sentient skeletons, or archangels of heavenly vengeance. In songs like The Great Atomic Power, they act as gods enforcers, bullies for Christ scaring non-believers into piety and devotion. It would be easy to write off The Great Atomic Power as Cold War kitsch if it weren't such a transcendent work of art. The Leuvens conjure up a nuclear apocalypse that seems more like an inevitability than a possibility, then asks us to contemplate the moment when a terrible explosion may rain down upon our land, leaving horrible destruction blotting out the works of man. Then there are two potential destinies. Are you ready for that great atomic power? Will you rise and meet your savior in the air? Or will you shudder, will you cry when the fire rains from on high? The Leuven's Jesus isn't some long-haired namby-pamby peacenick in sandals and beads preaching brotherhood and love. No, he's a badass warrior in perpetual combat with Satan's hordes. It's action, Jesus, that the Leuvens invoke when they sing of, quote, an army who will conquer all the enemy's great band. It's a regiment of Christians guided by the Savior's hand who will save his children from an awful fate when the mushroom of destruction falls in all its fury great. So that's what the AV Club had to say about it. I'm kind of the same opinion. Because while it is easy for me to laugh at it as the type of kitsch he is describing, I've heard enough propagandistic songs by the likes of, say, Toby Keith during my own lifetime to know that there's always someone willing to write such pieces and there's always a market for it. Plus, the idea of the bomb being some sort of deliverance is a motif of much of early Cold War popular culture. Something you actually heard me and Luke Giaconetti talk about last episode when we looked at comic books. But we'll kind of see here in the next episode, and in some future episodes. However, my first section is a look back at 30 years ago. This includes a rundown of what was going on in Eastern Europe from March 1990 to May 1990, and then I am going to take a look at how the end of communism played out in Poland. So one of the bigger events that began that march is what was called the Singing Revolution. This is the secession of the three Baltic republics, 
Estonia, Latvia, and Lithuania from the Soviet Union, which were the first of the Soviet republics to break off from the main country. I'm going to go into this in more depth next episode, including why it is referred to as the Singing Revolution. For now, I will run down the list of events just bullet style, because they took place during these months. On March 11th, Lithuania declared its independence from the Soviet Union with the act of re-establishment of the state of Lithuania. Four days later, the Soviet Union would announce that this declaration of independence was considered invalid. But Estonia would follow suit later in the month, as after its first free elections on March 18th, that Soviet Republic declared that Soviet rule was illegal and had been illegal since 1940, Estonia declared a transition period for full independence. They would restore the formal name of the country, which is the Republic of Estonia, on May 8th, along with its former flag, its coat of arms, and other national symbols. This was not without resistance, as the pro-Soviet inter-movement attempted to take power on May 15th, but was forced down by the people. Meanwhile, Latvia declares its own independence from the Soviet Union on May 4th. And like I said a few moments ago, you'll be getting more in-depth information about the Baltic states and the singing revolution in the next episode, which will drop in August. Other events that happened during this period relate in some part to events that I've already talked about, including the reunification of Germany, but we will continue to see the domino-like effect of communism's fall throughout Eastern Europe. On March 12th, Soviet leaders began leaving Hungary under terms of an agreement to withdraw all Soviet troops by June 1st. Hungary would then hold its first parliamentary election on March 25th, Hungary's first multi-party election since 1948, and the Hungarian Democratic Forum would win the most seats. On March 13th, the Supreme Soviet of the Soviet Union approves changes to the Constitution of the Soviet Union, to create a strong U.S.-style presidency. The person elected to the first five-year term as the first ever president of the Soviet Union on March 15th is Mikhail Gorbachev. East Germany holds its first free elections with Lothar de Mazier becoming prime minister on April 12th, heading a conservative coalition that favors German reunification. That reunification would make more progress on May 18th, as East Germany and West Germany signed a treaty to merge their economic and social systems effective July 1st. On April 8th in Yugoslavia, the Socialist Republic of Slovenia holds Yugoslavia's first multi-party election since 1938. After that election, a center-right coalition led by Lajja Petrle forms Yugoslavia's first non-communist government since 1945. On April 13th, the Soviet Union apologized for the Katyn massacre. This was a massacre of 22,000 Polish military officers and officials in April and May of 1940, as the Soviet Union invaded Poland along with Germany doing the same during the opening days of the Second World War. According to Wikipedia, an investigation conducted by the Office of the Prosecutors General of the Soviet Union in 1990 and 1991, and the Russian Federation in 1991-2004, confirmed Soviet responsibility for the massacres, but refused to classify this action as a war crime or act of mass murder. 
The investigation was closed on the grounds of the perpetrators were dead, and since the Russian government would not classify the dead as victims of the Great Purge, formal posthumous rehabilitation was deemed inapplicable. But in November 2010, the Russian State Duma approved a declaration blaming Stalin and other Soviet officials for ordering the massacre. On May 19th, the U.S. and Soviet Union agreed to end production of chemical weapons and to destroy most of their stockpiles of chemical weapons. The next day, which is May 20th, the first post-communist presidential and parliamentary elections are held in Romania. And finally, on May 29th and May 30th of 1990, Mikhail Gorbachev arrived in Ottawa for a 29-hour visit, Boris Yeltsin was elected as the first ever president of the Russian Soviet Federative Socialist Republic, which is basically he becomes president of Russia. This is important because he would succeed Gorbachev as the president of the Soviet Union or what we knew of the Soviet Union. And Gorbachev and U.S. President George H.W. Bush would begin a four-day summit in Washington, D.C., so for the more in-depth look at events of the time, I wanted to take a look at Poland. Poland was actually one of the first countries to shed its Soviet influence and had a protest movement that had a high profile since the early 1980s, and the key figure in that was Lech Walesa, who would go on to become Poland's first democratically elected president in 1989. He came to prominence in the 1960s when he helped form the Polish Solidarity Movement and prior to 1989 was famous for leading a strike at the Lenin shipyard in Gdansk, which was in protest of rising food prices. It wound up inspiring other protests through the country. The result was the establishment of the Free Trade Union as a group recognized by the Polish government, which allowed for workers' rights, including the right to strike. The Solidarity Movement, for all the progress that the union made, was outlawed by the government in 1981. Waleska spent time in jail, after which he returned to work in Gdansk as an electrician, and he was also awarded the Nobel Peace Prize. He continued to lead the underground and was eventually elected president in 1989 in the first free elections that Poland had in 63 years. His term as president wound up being marked by a turn toward the privatization of the industry and the introduction of a free market economy, as well as free elections, a change in foreign relations, and the eventual withdrawal of Soviet troops from the country. It was not exactly smooth, there were a number of short-term issues that harmed some of his popularity, even though the long-term results were very positive. And I probably should have gone into more depth about Lekwaleska in Poland in a prior episode, but I was so interested in the Romanian Revolution that I kind of put Poland aside for a little bit. This does not have the violence of Romania. And I'm really only giving you the Wikipedia summary, but Lualeska is one of those figures who is important to this time because, as I like to point out, our look at historical important events tends to get distilled, and our very America-centered look at the world of the Cold War does tend to distill the end of it down to Reagan's speech at the Berlin Wall being sort of a wave of a magic wand that caused the Iron Curtain to open. 
Now, that's a little bit snarky, but my point is that we tend to lose nuance when we take such a 10,000-foot view of history, and the people who were important to significant events get left on the cutting room floor because they don't fit within the paragraph in the textbook, they're not American, they're not male, or they aren't white. Now, Lechlelesa is a white male, but his being Polish and not, say, Mikhail Gorbachev, who was probably the only other foreign person that we know who had a role in ending the Cold War, if you're just studying from a history book, means that Waleska becomes either the answer to a trivia question or garners the who-is-that response from your average person. And I don't mean to diminish the contributions that the two superpowers made to ending the Cold War. And later on in our discussions on this topic, we will certainly hit upon the perestroika and glasnost policies of Mikhail Gorbachev and Ronald Reagan's foreign policy throughout his two terms in office, because both of them were major factors in the end of this conflict. However, I wanted to point out that within the individual countries that broke out of the Iron Curtain, there were movements started by those countrymen. And I also wanted to point him out because not only was he one of the more prominent people in one of the bigger countries, but it's also a good way to show how long it can take for some movements to succeed. Walesco was working on starting this in the 60s. So we're talking at least a full 20 years until he was able to liberate Poland from the yoke of Soviet control. I guess a equivalent with another country and its policies that were just as cruel would be Nelson Mandela and the anti-apartheid movement. Mandela spent a couple of decades in prison and did not let that stop him from fighting for uh, the end of the apartheid policy. So these are long, simmering, long, hard-working movements that eventually pay off in the long term. And yes, like I said, there were several outside factors, most notably the collapse of the Soviet economy and the Communist Party-controlled power structure. But we also need to give him credit for seeing his opportunity and taking advantage of it. And again, 20 years of dedication to a cause is admirable and at the same time hard for some of us to wrap our head around in a society and culture with a 24-hour news cycle that lives by the phrase, what have you done for me lately? We see only results. We get impatient in wanting those results and we even dismiss the effects of the trauma that people went through even if that trauma was at the hands of an oppressive regime. We've seen swings back and forth in European politics over the past 30 years, as much as we have seen swings back and forth in American politics as well. And that includes reframing different historical events, or at least looking at them through different lenses. The big question, if you can work past our constant focus in our media and our culture on winners and losers and what you have you done for me lately, is how do we recognize past oppression or atrocity and how do we learn from it? It's not something I can really answer here, but I do think that taking the time to focus on some of the individuals or some of the citizen movements from the end of the Cold War is an important step. I'm going to take a quick break right now, and when I get back, I'll be going into my pop culture coverage, which is all about the Office of Civil Defense. 
so please stick around. I hope he's home. Why does it sound like I'm using a phone in the UK? I told you never to call me again. Yeah, I know. And modern science has yet to create a device to measure how much I don't care. Look, I'm getting the trailer for this year's JL May together, and I assumed I had to make you a part of it since you're always in everybody's trailer or something. <laughs> well, look at you leading this year's JL May. Somebody's wearing his big boy pants. So what's the theme? I sent you an email like a month ago. Like I even pay attention to anything you send me. Countdown to Infinite Crisis. Infinite Crisis? No, Countdown to Infinite Crisis. I'm not following. Shocking. The theme this year, I'm, I'm going to, like I'm talking to a child. The theme this year is Countdown to Infinite Crisis. I thought it was a fascinating time period in DC's history. So a bunch of us are getting together to talk about the various specials and miniseries and crossovers that led up to Infinite Crisis. It's the event before the event. The whole thing is going to kick off on April 30th, 2020, with a special episode of Views from a Longbox covering the Countdown to Infinite Crisis 80-page giant, and from there, a whole bunch of shows that I will be adding in post-production will discuss these previously mentioned miniseries and crossover issues. And people actually agreed to this? Shockingly, yes! Well, it's probably a good thing that you're going to cover Countdown to Infinite Crisis instead of the Countdown series, because that was a train wreck. Yeah, you know, actually, that was my thinking, too. Now, are you going to help me with this trailer or not? Fine. I will help you with your little trailer. Good. Uh, don't worry, by the way. There won't be any dates for you to get wrong. I hate you so much. JL May 2020. Countdown to Infinite Crisis. The event before the event. This crossover kicks off on April 30th, 2020. On Views from the Long Box. And continues into Aquaman and Firestorm, the Fire and Water podcast, Robin, Everyone Loves the Drake, Pop Culture Affidavit, It All Comes Back to Superman, The Fan Holes Podcast, Justice's First Dawn, The Birds of Prey Podcast, Married with Comics, The Coffee and Comics Podcast, The Longbox Crusade, Task Force X, Relatively Geeky Presents, Wonder Woman, Warrior for Peace, and the Dr. DC Podcast. Hey, Bert, come on out and meet all these nice people, please. All right, we really can't blame you. You see, Bert is a very, very careful fellow. When there's danger, this is the way he keeps from being hurt. Sometimes it even saves his life. That's why these children are practicing to duck and cover just as you do in your school. We all know the atomic bomb is very dangerous. Since it may be used against us, we must get ready for it, just as we are ready for many other dangers that are around us all the time. The United States Office of Civil Defense, which sanctioned educational films like Duck and Cover, actually has its origins about 10 years prior to that film's 1951 production and release. 
In May of 1941, President Franklin Roosevelt authorized the creation of the office, with the idea being that a civil defense force should exist at home during wartime. Of course, the United States was not at war yet. But if you study the history of the lead-up to our involvement in the Second World War, we were clearly allied with the British and the French, and our involvement was inevitable. That, of course, became reality on December 7, 1941, when the Japanese packed Pearl Harbor. As a result, the Office of Civil Defense became civilian auxiliaries of the branches of the armed forces. These auxiliaries still exist today in various capacities, and they are deployed in non-combat roles, such as search and rescue operations, especially when it comes to natural disasters and other emergency preparedness. But during the 1950s, the Office of Civil Defense was very much focused on what was then a very real threat of a nuclear attack. They published literature such as the book Survival Under Atomic Attack, and other publications and posters that doubled this propaganda. Now, I use that word knowing it is a very loaded word, but I can say that we're talking about propaganda's denotation. Survival under attack, various posters warning about the effects of nuclear radiation, educational films like Duck and Cover, these were meant to persuade people of the importance of being prepared and therefore take the necessary steps. In other words, they were designed to change behavior. And while it certainly addressed the fears that many had, it was not as fear-mongering in some ways that other propaganda of the time was, such as Is This Tomorrow?, and the film Red Nightmare, which I'll talk about later. Now, I should note that the civil defense efforts of the Cold War were not as effective as the mobilization during World War II. Yes, people were very scared of nuclear war, and they were prepared to some degree with some actually going as far as to build shelters in their backyards, or there were buildings like schools and other places that could hold large numbers of people being designated as a fallout shelter. In fact, the high school I attended still had the fallout shelter sign on the wall near the outside entrance to the basement. By the time I attended, it was being used for the technology department and, like, storage. So there was a wood shop, a metal shop, a photo lab, two computer labs, the home economics room. But much like other little details of that building from the 1950s, remnants of the past were still there. I can tell you, though, that not all of the shelters were eventually put to other use. A February 2019 story on News 12 Long Island reported that Great Neck Road Elementary School in Copaig, which is in Suffolk County, had a fallout shelter that was hidden for decades because it had been sealed up behind a cinder block and cement wall. The shelter was discovered while maintenance workers were replacing pipes in the school's basement. They wound up taking down the cement blocks and discovered that the shelter was still fully stocked with chairs, water, and boxes that had food, medical supplies, sanitation kits, and instructions on how to survive a nuclear attack. And it's very possible that there were a number of other fallout shelters that have gone undiscovered over the years, as well as some that have. Zillow, the real estate website, has advertised homes with preserved shelters as well as missile silos that have been converted to residences. So you never know what's out there. And really, I wonder if anybody out there who is listening to this built a backyard bomb shelter, knows anybody who built one back in the 50s or 60s, or if anybody happens to know where there's still one around, perhaps on property that they own. 
If you have any experience with such things, if you're old enough to have built one in your backyard, please write in. Send pictures if you'd like. I can always put them in the show notes, giving you credit, of course. It would be fascinating to hear about. But on to the films. My first film is an educational film called Duck and Cover. I've already played excerpts from it. It's probably the most famous educational film of this type, and it is so well known that it was chosen by the Library of Congress for the National Film Registry. Its basic premise is to educate elementary school children on what to do in a nuclear attack, and it was produced in 1951 by Archer Productions. Archer Productions, I've discovered, has a bit of an interesting history. Before I go into it, I want to give credit to my source for this, which is Connellrad.com, C-O-N-E-L-R-A-D.com. This is a blog that's dedicated to looking at Cold War era films and other ephemera like Duck and Cover. Archer Productions was created by former Disney animator Lars E. Colonius and was mainly created for the purposes of advertising. In 1951, they were chosen to produce two films for the Office of Civil Defense, These were Our Cities Must Fight, which covered urban defense, and the other, of course, was Duck and Cover. Now, Connellrad.com, which I mentioned a few moments ago, has a great detailed look at how the film was made, and while I'm going to give you some of the highlights, I highly recommend you check out that site. I'll put a link in the show notes for you. So the film was written with input from the National Education Association, and Colonius himself created the character of Bert the Turtle. This is an animated turtle who is extremely careful and will demonstrate to young children why it is important to duck and cover. The drill itself had been introduced about a year before the film was made, and by the 1950-51 school year was being mandated in schools across the country. If you're unfamiliar with the drill, the U.S. Army Field Manual, FM 3-4, Chapter 4, describes it as follows. Dropping immediately and covering exposed skin provides protection against blast and thermal effects. Immediately drop face down. A log, a large rock, or any depression in the Earth's surface provides some protection. Close eyes. Protect exposed skin from heat by putting hands and arms under or near the body and keeping the helmet on. Remain face down until the blast wave passes and debris stops falling. Stay calm. Check for injury. Check weapons and equipment damage and prepare to continue the mission. Now, the children in classrooms were not soldiers on the battlefield, but they were advised to take similar actions by getting under their desks and covering their heads, something Billy Joel describes in the song Leningrad. The film's purpose is to demonstrate the drill to students and then give them advice on what to do and who to look for in various situations. It was shot in and around Astoria, Queens and PS 152. The narration was by Robert Middleton, who may or may not be related to Alan, who was a long-careered character actor. The Bert the Turtle animated segments are mixed in with footage of children practicing the drill, older kids helping younger ones get protected, 
and kids asking adults for help. At various times, Bert the Turtle makes appearances and becomes the mascot for preparedness. I'd come across Duck and Cover years ago, when I was looking for random pieces of Cold War stuff to show my students during our unit on Arthur Miller's play The Crucible. And it always struck me as kind of an oddity. I think that my initial reaction was that I thought it was really weird or something. But watching it now makes me feel slightly nostalgic, if that makes sense. I mean... I don't have the experience of watching nuclear holocaust educational films, but I did live through the second nuclear war scare of the early 80s, right around the time that tensions between the United States and the Soviet Union were ramping up again, and we were seeing films like The Day After on television. I will be getting to that one in a future episode, But I bring it up here because from the early 1980s up into the early 1990s, we still had to do what they called air raid drills at least once, maybe twice a year. And Robert Middleton's narration does remind me of the dozens of faded films and film strips I watched throughout my education. The film itself was well received by the government at the time, and Bert the Turtle did become a noteworthy preparedness mascot at least at first. On February 23, 1952, the entire film was broadcast on New York City's CBS affiliate, WCBS Channel 2, and it was shown for the first time on March 6, 1952, to 6th graders at PS33 in New York City. However, its effectiveness and popularity did not last very long, and it was met with controversy pretty quickly. Parents in Levittown, New York, complained that it was scary for little kids, and by the end of 1952, psychologists, including the Committee for the Study of War Tensions in Children, said that the film actually promoted anxiety more than it actually promoted safety. Archer Productions was not too long for the world. They tried to turn their success in advertising and civil defense films into television production, but they wound up in massive debt and went completely bankrupt by the end of 1952. The government then purchased all of the rights to duck and cover and they continued to use it, but by 1959 they declared that changes and advancements in technology made duck and cover an obsolete film, although the drill itself, as I mentioned, was still conducted. And it actually still is. However, we don't call it an air raid drill anymore. We refer to it as our Tornado Preparedness Drill. Now, the other film that I'm going to cover is a much different type. Produced by Warner Brothers and given the classification of Armed Forces Information Film, or AFIF, number 120, and originally called Freedom and You, it was eventually retitled Red Nightmare. Thank God, thank God you're all right. I have something to do. Gee, Helen, I'm sorry I'm late. Something strange happened. Something very strange. I was standing in the plaza... Um, Never mind that. But you are disturbing the children. Their meals are to be consumed without interruption. I don't blame you for being sore. But I'll make it up to you. Tomorrow night we'll have an early dinner at the steakhouse. Then we'll take the kids to the drive-in movie. That would be quite impossible. Tomorrow night you've been selected to address the parent-teachers committee. The what? Oh, no, there must be some mistake. They don't want me. What would I talk about? 
How Jimmy's team lost the Little League Championship last year? Subject of your address has already been selected for you. The theme will be how the new communistic life benefits children. Now, wait a minute. What if I don't want to talk about that? What if I don't want to talk at all? I would advise you not to object. Recently, the party learned that you were on the debate team while in school. They were very disturbed that you kept this fact a secret from them. Experienced speakers are needed by the party. They'll make very good use of you. Sergeant, check the kitchen. You look in the back. I'll be upstairs. Hey! What is this? Where do you think you're going? We have no time for explanations. Already we are 15 minutes behind schedule. I don't care who sent you or why. But you're not going to take another step until I see your warrant. Warrant? We need no warrant. As a member of the Young Communist League, your daughter has volunteered for farm work. She's to be transported immediately. The truck is waiting outside. Now, wait a minute. Let me get something straight. You say my daughter volunteered? That is correct. Here's the signature. Requesting transport to the People's Collective. Signature on that piece of paper is false. And everything you've said is a lie because my daughter would never leave here of her own free will. Sergeant! You've got no right to be in this house. I'm going to give you just 10 seconds to get out of here. Daddy? It's true, Daddy. I did volunteer for farm work. Linda, why? The party convinced me that I should free myself of the lingering bourgeois influence of family life. I am ready. Do not interfere. It is for my own good. And Comrade Donovan, do not think that your deviationist remarks shall be overlooked be reported to the proper authorities. The film was produced and released in 1957 and was directed by George Wagoner, whose most famous film was 1941's The Wolfman, which starred Lon Chaney. It was produced by Warner Brothers under a directive from the Department of Defense and, according to the credits, was made, quote, under the direct supervision of Jack Warner. It seems very dramatic to say this, or perhaps the studio was embellishing for the sake of getting into the good graces of the government. But it's not unprecedented, as there are a number of films throughout World War II that used well-known Hollywood personalities or were produced by studios with the urging or by request of the government. In fact, one of those films, The North Star, is a film that I saw in the same place where I first saw Red Nightmare a Cold War politics class that I took in college. This class was taught by Hans Mayer. He's sadly no longer with us, but he was one of my favorite professors in four years of studying political science as an undergrad at Loyola College in Maryland, which is now Loyola University, Maryland. I had him for poli-sci 101, and then I took him for classes on what was then called Third World Politics, the Cold War and World War II. The guy was Austrian. He was born in the 1930s, and he had all of these stories about he and his family living through World War II and how he was drafted into the German army just prior to the Battle of the Bulge and all sorts of stuff. In fact, I think he like escaped by train and snuck out of the country rather than actually report for duty. The classes were always great because you spent about two-thirds to three-quarters of it listening to him lecture and tell stories, and then you watched some sort of movie for the rest of it. 
We were also assigned to watch movies as part of the curriculum, so I spent a lot of time in the school library popping obscure and foreign films into the TV-VCR combos they had in study cubicles in the library basement. And you know, when I think of it, I got a pretty solid education on film throughout college. And I don't just mean staying up until 3am to watch Pulp Fiction for the 20th time in three weeks. Red Nightmare was one of those films that we watched. And I remember we spent the better part of the time we watched it in class kind of laughing at it. Later on, I saw a clip of it in a documentary about anti-communist propaganda. But it wasn't until I was doing the research for this episode that I watched it in full for the first time since about 1998. I'll get to my reaction to it after I tell you what it's about. Narrated and presented by Jack Webb, whom television audiences would come to know as Joe Friday on Dragnet, the film runs about 28 minutes and stars Jack Kelly, who is one of the stars of Maverick, as Jerry Donovan, Jeannie Cooper, who is a long-running cast member of The Young and the Restless and was the mother of actor Corbin Burnson, plays his wife Helen, Patricia Woodell, who would play Bobby Joe Bradley on Petticoat Junction, was their teenage daughter Linda, Robert Conrad, who would become famous for The Wild Wild West in 77 Sunset Strip, played Pete. And Peter Brown, who would have roles in a number of westerns, was Linda's boyfriend, Bill Martin. Webb opens the film with a scene that was shot on a town square backlot set at Warner Brothers Studios. And as he walks through, we see soldiers, barbed wire, and fencing. Webb explains that this isn't a town in America, but a town somewhere deep behind the Iron Curtain, where communists are training to act and live like Americans so that they can infiltrate us. Now, I'd like to think this is total crap, but I did watch every episode of The Americans, so while the film is probably exaggerating a little bit, it's not too far off. We then switch to the main story of the Donovan family. Jerry is your typical middle-class American, the type of guy who works in a well-paying manufacturing job and comes home every day to his house with his wife and his kids in the suburban neighborhood. He's the type of guy that the average audience can definitely identify with, and the entire family is cut from the leave-it-to-beaver mold. Jerry doesn't do anything particularly bad, but it's pretty clear that he takes his freedoms and civic duties for granted. On the night when we meet him, he skips some important civic meeting to hang out at home and then has some conflict with Linda when Bill comes over for dinner and the two of them announce that they want to get married. So with that on his mind, he has a dream where he's exactly who he usually is, but all of a sudden everyone is acting weird. There are men giving speeches in the park talking about communist philosophy. Helen is cold, and she talks about them doing their duty to the party. Then Linda leaves the house because she is going to work on a farming commune. Jerry can't take it anymore, and he lashes out, which is something that gets him arrested. He's put on trial, and really, we all know it's going to be a show trial, and he winds up being sentenced. But before the punishment can be meted out, he wakes up, and he realizes that all is, in fact, okay with the world. Not only that, he tells Linda that she can get married, and she says that, oh, they will, but they are going to wait until after college. This was shown on television in 1962. It also wound up being shown in high schools. 
It's got a plot structure pretty similar to episodes of The Twilight Zone. It also reminds me of the Donald Duck short Der Fuhrer's Face, where he wakes up and is living in Naziland and is forced to work in a factory, but then wakes up again at the end to discover that it was all a dream and he lives in the good old U.S. of A. The premise isn't too crazy, and it's actually a good idea and pretty effective when you think of it because at first nothing seems to be that wrong, but then Jerry starts to see things are a little bit off, which I think is how most of us would probably react in a situation like that. Because it's not like you'd wake up when everything has changed and all of a sudden you'd be right in the middle of Communism USA. You'd start to realize it gradually, and then when his daughter announces she's leaving, he hits his breaking point, and that's when we get the moment when the police come for him. And it tips into the crazier part of the story because, you know, there's the show trial and he's all hysterical. That is the more ridiculous part, as is the way that the family dynamic is instantly different once we're in commie land. Helen goes from wearing a white house dress and being a loving wife to wearing a black house dress and being completely very cold. Because, you know, communists have no feelings. It's kind of like the writers watched Invasion of the Body Snatchers and said, you know, we should have them act like that, but let's just get rid of the science fiction stuff with the, with the pods, right? And like I said, the trial's kind of ridiculous. I mean, I realize there were show trials conducted throughout the Soviet Union, and the very possibility of the people being put on trial, being sent to a gulag, was very real. Gulags were no joke. I have read One Day in the Life of Ivan Denisovich. But this is portrayed in a way that's... It's almost like we're getting satire. But Webb comes back out and tries to tell, sell you this like, you know, is this tomorrow? You know, are they, they're going to be ready for us. And for all we know, they could be here. It's a similar message if you've watched enough 50s science fiction to things like Invasion of the Body Snatchers. In fact, They're Already Here is a line delivered by Kevin McCarthy. It's one of the most famous lines of the movie. And it's actually, the whole that whole point is delivered way more effectively than, than Red Nightmare. Jack Webb kind of lectures us. Now, both of those films were produced within a year of each other. Body Snatchers was made in 56, and Red Nightmare was made in 57. While the Armin McCarthy hearings had come and gone by that point, the country was still on high alert as far as its incredibly tense relationship with the Soviet Union was concerned, so the paranoia ran very deep. I recommend watching both of these shorts, because not only do they give you a glimpse of education during this era, but I think that watching them helps us understand some of the ways that similar sentiments and methods of influence are still being used today. They're both on YouTube, and I'll link to them in the show notes. I also recommend watching the original Invasion of the Body Snatchers and reading Arthur Miller's play The Crucible, or watching the Daniel Day-Lewis Winona Ryder movie from 1994-1995. That criticizes McCarthyism to an expert degree. I have some feedback to go through, but before I do, I want to make a couple of quick recommendations for listening and viewing. I just started listening to the podcast Wind of Change. This is available on Spotify. It is produced by Crooked Media, and it centers around the idea that the 1991 Scorpions hit, Wind of Change, was actually written by the CIA 
in a way to help influence the citizens of the Soviet Union in Eastern Europe to embrace democracy and capitalism. Along the way, there's a pretty thorough examination of rock music and popular culture's role in the end of the Cold War, as well as how other aspects of American entertainment contribute to the changing the opinions of citizens in the Eastern Bloc. And you can see more of that in the documentary that I highly recommend, and this is called Chuck Norris vs. Communism. This one is about how people used to sneak 80s action flicks into Romania and the influence they had on the people in that country. I watched that on Netflix, and I'm pretty sure it is still available for streaming. But on to the feedback. I have two emails. The first one is from Gene Hendricks, who has the Hammer Strikes website at thehammerstrikes.com, as well as the podcast The Hammer Strikes, The Quantum Cast, Class 1000, and Anime Freaks, all here on the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network. His email is titled, Were There Atomic Bazooka Joe Comics? Which is a reference to some of the more crazy weaponry we saw in last episode's Atomic War and World War III comic books. Gene writes, Tom, I've really been enjoying your look back at the fall of the USSR and fallen walls open curtains. Like you, I lived through these events, even though I don't remember ever digging into them too much. That's why hearing you putting everything in context is so nice. The comic section of the latest episode with Luke was great. I haven't read very many pre-code books, but some of these sound goofy enough that I might take the plunge. On another note, have you considered covering radio shows? If not, I would like to suggest at least giving a few episodes of I Was a Communist for the FBI a listen. It's a series based on a real undercover agent, Mac Svetik, who infiltrated the Communist Party in Pittsburgh and was there for nine years. Since the radio show was produced in the early 1950s, I'm sure you can guess that the tone was highly patriotic and the events were probably over-dramatized. Still, it's a good show if you know that going in. Gene. Gene, I'll have to take a look at that. I have to be honest that despite my time as a podcaster and the thousands of podcast episodes I've listened to over the years, I've never gone back and listened to old radio shows. So I will check that out and might insert a section into a future episode about that. Speaking of future episodes, I'm going to be looking at a few science fiction films with Cold War themes next episode. I might touch on the aforementioned Invasion of the Body Snatchers, but I do want to spend a little more time on some of my all-time favorites, such as The Day the Earth Stood Still, and everyone's favorite giant monster, Godzilla. So expect a return from Luke Giaconetti, who is the authority on giant monsters, courtesy of his Earth Destruction Directive podcast, which you can find on Two True Freaks, and who also had some feedback for episode one. It didn't get read last episode because he was my guest, so I figured I'd read it here. And he says, Tom, just wanted to drop you a quick line to say that I really enjoyed Fallen Walls Open Curtains episode one. Growing up in the 1980s, I have a lot of vivid memories of the Cold War in fiction, ranging from Rocky IV to Godzilla 1985 and everything in between. So when you announced this show, I knew I would have to check it out, and I have to say it did not disappoint. I don't have specific memories of the fall of the Berlin Wall, not compared to the breakup of the Soviet Union, but I do remember discussing it in school a little bit. 
Specifically, the idea of the no-man's land, where defectors could be easily spotted and gunned down. Going to a Catholic primary school, this was presented as an obvious demonstration of the immorality of the wall. My family was never big on politics when I was a kid, and if I'm being honest, they still aren't today. I am the most politically aware member of my family, and frankly, I try to limit that for obvious reasons. So I don't remember discussing this with my parents or brother, but I do have some vague, half-formed memories of the classic images of the wall coming down, so I must have seen some of it. As I have stated on other podcasts, my memory is pretty spotty when it comes to a lot of things, and this is no different, so I appreciated your historical coverage and contemporary news media context. Oddly enough, over the last few years, I have personally noticed an increase in the use of the DGR in fiction, especially film. He's referring to East Germany, by the way. Steven Spielberg's Bridges Spies is the obvious one, telling the story of James Donovan, the attorney who negotiated the exchange which saw the return of U-2 pilot Gary Powers. But the DGR, and specifically The Wall, also play a role in Guy Ritchie's underrated Man from Uncle film from 2015, as well as 2017's Atomic Blonde, which was an adaptation of the Oni Press comic The Coldest City. Even the 2018 reimagining slash homage of the horror classic Suspiria, originally set in Germany in 1977 but utterly apolitical, addresses the German summer from 1977 and uses the wall to express a theme of generational guilt and the strong preying upon the weak and vulnerable. Why this resurgence in the use of the Berlin Wall? I have my suspicions, but I'll keep my speculation to myself. More generally, the theme and premise of your show reminds me of one of my favorite songs from my youth, The Gap, by British pop group The Thompson Twins. This pop-rock tune was the title track of their 1984 album Into the Gap and is an anthem for understanding and cooperation. The chorus especially jumps to mind. They say east is east, west is west, two different colors on the map. We say break the line, chew the fat, keep moving out into the gap. A little early for the time frame your show focuses on, but there it lingers in my brain nevertheless. Thanks for the show. Very eager to hear the next episode, Luke. Thanks, Luke, and I'm glad you're liking the show and coming back on. So I'll be back in August, where I'll be talking about the events of June 1990 to December 1990 and classic Cold War science fiction. Until then, you can go to the show notes on popcultureaffidavit.com to see the two films that I talked about, send me feedback on social media, and as always, thank you very much for listening, and take care. This has been an episode of Fallen Walls, Open Curtains, a podcast miniseries brought to you by Pop Culture Affidavit, which is part of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network. You can find show notes and other information about this miniseries and the blog Pop Culture Affidavit at popcultureaffidavit.com. You can find episodes of the show and other great shows at twotruefreaks.com. The Facebook group for this show is facebook.com slash popcultureaffidavit. You can follow me on Twitter at popaff, that's P-O-P-A-F-F. Feedback can be sent to popcultureaffidavit at gmail.com. All clips used are for informational and illustrative purposes only and no copyright 
infringement is intended. Thank you very much for listening and come back next time for the next chapter in the end of the Cold War.